I had been meaning to sort out a webcam for ages, but it was never quite at the top of my list of priorities. I managed fine on Skype without a camera. After all, my friends knew what I looked like and then along came Covid and we all started using Zoom and I was talking to people who didn't know me, so I tried to buy a webcam. But we were in lockdown and the non-essential shops were shut, so I went online, but everywhere was sold out. So no webcam for me at that time. Should have bought one sooner. All of which reminds me of a story Jesus once told. Imagine a wedding. Your picture might be of a posh car arriving at a pretty country church. Out climbs the bride in a beautiful dress, the church bells appealing. A man in a top hat in the church porch goes in to tell the vicar that the bride has arrived. The organist strikes up the wedding march and we are away. That's one picture. But back in the time of Jesus, weddings were different. The absolute basic is unchanged. A man and a woman leave their own families to be joined together to form a new family. And in so doing, they make promises to one another in the sight of both God and human witnesses. And then there is a party. But a lot of the secondary details are very different. No one at the time of Jesus ever wore a top hat and there was no such thing as vicars or parish churches with or without bells. A first century wedding party could last for days. One of the wedding customs of ancient Israel was a sort of parade. The groom and his companions would work their way around the village until they arrived at the bride's home. The bridesmaids would wait outside to light the groom into the house. Back then, light coming from oil lamps. We're in the Near East, remember, so less chance of rain than in the British Isles. In the story Jesus told in Matthew 25, five of the young women were sensible and kept some oil in reserve for when it was needed. And five ran out, so at the crucial moment they could not provide any light. Panic! Dash to the oil shop! But it was too late. The shop was shut and the owner, perhaps miffed because he hadn't been invited to the party, was not going to open up until morning. So too late. The girls rush back to the party venue and find the door locked. Too late again. I have never been to a wedding like that. And I suppose our traditions would seem strange to a first century Jew so best not be too critical. Trying to retell this parable using a modern parallel is tricky. The best I can come up with is that all ten bridesmaids were on photography duty. While they waited for the groom to arrive, five of the girls were taking selfies with their phones and the other five weren't. So when they were called into action, the five selfie takers had run out of charge and the five who would save their batteries weren't about to share. When we're reading parables, uh, it's important not to get too worked up about all the little details. A parable makes a point. In the parable of the foolish bridesmaids from Matthew 25, Jesus himself explains the point, and he should know because he's the one telling the story. It is a simple warning. Watch. 
you don't know when the day or the hour is coming, which seems to me to be referring to the time when Jesus will return. I don't know when it, that will happen, but I do know that it will happen sooner or later. And every day it doesn't happen brings the day when it will one day closer. So be ready. Back in the 1960s, a singer named Larry Norman used this as a theme in one of his songs. I won't sing it because Larry Norman had a high tenor voice suitable for singing about spiritual matters and I have a bass voice suitable for singing about hippopotamuses. But the words go like this. Life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children died, the days grew cold, a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. There's more, but that gives you the flavour of it. It has to be said that some Bible readers get into a muddle when they look at how and when the world will end. I think we all agree that the world will end at some point. Atheists and believers alike know that sooner or later the sun will expand to become a red giant star and take planet Earth with it. Believers, though, have a more optimistic belief. We know that God is in control. To quote the hymn, this is my father's world. When God is ready to bring this planet to an end, then that's what he will do. No one knows how, but it will happen. As to the when, it is a good principle to allow the Bible to tell us what we need to know. And when we're approaching tricky subjects, to look first at straightforward passages and allow them to shape our understanding of the tricky bits. So when his disciples asked Jesus about when the end was going to come, this was his reply. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is from Mark's account of the life of Jesus, chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. So no one knows... And if anyone says otherwise, either they or Jesus is wrong. And personally, I'd rather go with Jesus. There is one book in the Bible that people turn to when they want to find out about the end. That's the end with a capital T and a capital E. The end. The book of Revelation. There is no way that I can explain the book of Revelation to you in a talk like this. But I can share some key points to bear in mind. Firstly, Revelation sounds strange to modern readers. It should do. It is a vision or series of visions. 
I think the writer struggles to get everything written down while it's all fresh in his mind and at points he gets overwhelmed by it all. The type of writing is one that is unfamiliar to us modern readers. It's called apocalyptic. Yes, not a word that we throw into everyday conversation. In the Greek of the first century it had the idea of pulling aside a curtain to see what was hidden behind and often but not always, it was the curtain of time that was pulled back to reveal the future, or a future. And the details would have been clear to those at that time, but sometimes we don't have the key to decode it. Just as today, I can talk about my webcam, which for someone from the last century would be meaningless. Something to do with spiders, perhaps? So here is my easy to remember guide to understanding the book of Revelation. The lamb defeats the beast. Or, to quote another song that I'm not going to sing, I have looked at the back of the book and we win. Revelation tells in a symbolic way how Jesus, the lamb and his followers defeat the beast that is the Roman Empire. How do I know? Look around the world today and you will find followers of the lamb that was slain. And where is the Roman Empire? We win. Continuing the theme of Revelation, new beasts have arisen since the first century and all have been and gone. Any world leader who is against Christ is on the beast's side. And he, and they are always he's for some reason, he always loses. I would suggest that this way of reading Revelation makes more sense than trying to use it as a guidebook to the end of the world. And those of us that follow the Lamb have nothing to fear when the world does end, because Jesus will welcome us home. And that's good enough for me. I do not want to sound like one of those chaps that parade around town centres with a board proclaiming that the end is nigh. But it is. The world is finite, so every day, every moment that passes brings us closer to that end. And at a more human level, we are all mortal and therefore doomed to die. Even Methuselah, who lived to be 969 years old, died, eventually. So by reminding you of this fact, I'm just being realistic. We all die. Or at least our bodies die. But we are more than the bodies we live in. We are all, without exception, immortal. Because our inner being, the spirit that makes us who we are, our character, our personality, however we want to describe it, this will last forever. One day, this tired old body will wear out and come to a stop. There's another song I like, and again, I promise not to sing it to you. It is by a group called The Lost Dogs. They specialise in what is known as Americana. Um, a bit of blues with some folk and gospel mixed in. The song I'm thinking of tells how the singer found an old man on the street. He was clearly down and out and in need of some TLC. But then he said this. Young man. Don't feel bad for me. It will all work out all right. I was built for glory. I was made to last. 
God from these feet to walk golden streets when this hard life is past. Say he's doing well on the other side if anybody asks. Say I was built for glory. I was made to last. The key chapter in the Bible about our hope of a resurrection is in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul starts by reminding his readers of the fact that Jesus was raised from the grave. He then connects this fact with our own hope. If Christ has not been raised, then we are wasting our time. But of course, Paul knew and we believe that Jesus was raised. So we have a real hope. This is not just wish fulfilment, pie in the sky when we die. This is much better. Cake on our plate while we wait, if you like. And then Paul draws out the implications of all this. I'm going to close with the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 from verse 35 using Eugene Peterson's interpretive paraphrase, the message. Some sceptic is sure to ask, show me how resurrection works. Give me a diagram. Draw me a picture. What does this resurrection body look like? If you look at this question closely, you realise how absurd it is. There are no diagrams for this kind of thing. We do not have a parallel experience. Sorry, we do have a parallel experience in gardening. You plant a dead seed. Soon there is a flourishing plant. There's no visual likeness between seed and plant. You could never guess what a tomato would look like by looking at a tomato seed. What we plant in the soil and what grows out of it don't look anything alike. The dead body that we bury in the ground and the resurrection body that comes from it will be dramatically different. You will notice that the variety of bodies is stunning. There are, just as there are different kinds of seeds, there are different kinds of bodies. Humans, animals, birds, fish, each unprecedented in its form. You get a hint of the diversity of resurrection glory by looking at the diversity of bodies, not only on earth, but in the skies. Sun, moon, stars, all these varieties of beauty and brightness. And we're only looking at the pre-resurrection seeds. Who can imagine what the resurrection plants will be like? This image of planting a dead seed and raising a live plant is a mere sketch at best, but perhaps it will help in approaching the mystery of the resurrection body. But only if you keep in mind that when we're raised, we're raised for good, alive forever. The corpse that's planted is no beauty, but when it's raised, it's glorious. Put in the ground, weak. It comes up, powerful. The seed sown is natural. The seed grow is supernatural. Same seed, same body, but what a difference from when it goes down in physical mortality to when it is raised up in spiritual immortality. We follow this sequence in scripture. The first Adam received life. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. Physical life comes first, then spiritual. A firm base shaped from the earth a final completion coming out of heaven. The first man was made out of earth, 
and people since then are earthy. The second man was made out of heaven and people now can be heavenly. In the same way that we've worked from our earthy origins, let's embrace our heavenly ends. I need to emphasise, friends, that our natural earthy lives don't in themselves lead us by their very nature into the kingdom of God. Their very nature is to die. So how could they naturally end up in the life kingdom? But let me tell you something wonderful, a mystery, or probably, probably never fully understand. We're not all going to die, but we are all going to be changed. You hear a blast to end all blasts from a trumpet, and in the time that you look up and blink your eyes, it's over. On signal from that trumpet from heaven, the dead will be up and out of their graves, beyond the reach of death, never to die again. At the same moment and in the same way, we'll all be changed. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable. This mortal replaced by the immortal. Then the saying will come true. Death swallowed by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O oh death? O oh death, who's afraid of you now? It was sin that made death so frightening and law code guilt that gave sin its leverage, its destructive power. But now, in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, death, are gone. The gift of our master, Jesus Christ. Thank God. With all this going for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of the master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. Thank you, Paul. All of this is, I believe, something well worth thinking about. And thank you for listening.